Well, as you consider laws in society, I wonder, have you ever asked, why do we have laws? Why do we have certain laws, and tens of thousands of them here in America, many of them obscure, many of them very detailed? Why do we have laws like speed limits? Or why do we do things like lock our doors and lock our cars? We have speed limits, of course, because of the the high number of reckless drivers around us. We have those who enforce laws called law enforcement officers, or or by short police, uh, enforcing laws because it seems that the majority of society needs laws in order to restrain themselves from breaking them. Uh, We have laws because we need to be restrained. We lock our doors because we don't trust our neighbors. Uh, We lock our cars because we know that if we don't, people will get into them and steal 25 cents from us. We know that our favorite iPhone charger will be missing if we leave our car unlocked. We know that we have to have laws, we have to have locks in order to restrain people lest they get out of control. This morning, we're going to think about the law of God. Now, when you hear that word law, many of you, no doubt, might think of one particular set of laws in your Bible, often referred to as the Ten Commandments. Of course, many, if if they're reading their Bibles or you've been around Christianity much, know that the law is the Ten Commandments. But But the law is more than the Ten Commandments. Uh, It's known as the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Words. Um, And so uh, you might think that the the Ten Commandments was what Charles Heston carried around with him. It it wasn't that at all. It were ten words. They were literally the ten words given by God to Moses for the people. But, But the law is more than just ten commandments. In fact, the first five books of the Bible is called the law or the the Torah. Many New Testament authors will refer to the whole Old Testament from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the historic writings, through the Psalms and Proverbs, through the prophets as the law. And so this morning we're going to think about the law and why God has given us The law, and more importantly, how does the law, this Old Testament, whether we're we're talking about the first five books or whether we're talking about uh, the Ten Commandments or the whole Old Testament, how does a Christian read their Old Testament? More importantly, not only do how do we read our Old Testament, how, how are we to understand the law, how does it apply to our lives? And so you'll find among Christians many different answers to the question, how does the law apply to the life of the Christian? Classically, in Reformed theology, which is the position, of course, of your pastors, um, support a position that the, the law has three uses. And so if you take notes, and this isn't really part of the sermon, but well, it's kind of some contextual information that will help us understand what Paul is saying. They're they're classically identified three uses of the law. First, the law restrains evil. It restrains evil. Secondly, it reveals sin. And thirdly, it renews the soul. So Martin Luther, for example, said that the law had a purpose of revealing sin to sinners. It reveals the goodness of God and the brokenness of humanity and demonstrates one need for a savior. And so Luther wrote this, the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteous of hu- the self-righteousness of human beings for it shows them their sin so that by recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened and worn down and so long for peace and for the blessed offspring. In other words, Luther saw the law and its primary use to reveal sin. 
And no doubt when we read the Old Testament law, we, we understand what sin is. We, we understand that to strike your mother or father is sin. To commit adultery is sin. And we are to understand that if one has committed those things, that they have broken the law and thereby need someone to rescue them from the, the subsequent condemnation. But John Calvin further developed the idea in the years to follow and identified another use of the law is to restrain evil. This is often called the civil use of the law. What you and I know the law in our everyday life to do, and that is to restrain evil. Calvin wrote that Paul takes it that good laws are made to deal with bad behavior of bad people. And that laws were laid down to curb the evil ways of godless people. In other words, uh, Paul, uh, Calvin rather, saw Paul's usage of the law to restrain evil. So, so that it's used to reveal sin, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. To restrain sinners, that is to give us some boundaries, lest we, we kind of fall uh, by the wayside. But there's a third use of the law with which Augustine really developed and thought through centuries earlier than these two fellows. And, and that is that, that the law has a renewing or sanctifying use. It renews us. It sanctifies us. And so Calvin, building on Augustine's thought, said this, For by frequent meditation upon the law, believers will be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. And so these are what we classically understand to be the uses of the law. The law does not save. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved, not, not through obedience. But that does not mean that we just, you know, kind of throw the Old Testament away and say, hey, we're just, we're New Testament Christians here this morning. No, rather, we as Christians see the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. We rightly understand that God uses the law in these three ways in the life of the believer. Well, what does this have to do with 1 Timothy? Well, Paul is writing to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, whom he's left in Ephesus with the task of ordering the teaching ministry of the church. You see, years earlier when Paul had planted the church in Ephesus, had uh, confirmed the elders, trained them for two years, and then departed. He had warned the elders that false teachers were going to arise from among them. And, and, and he had this sort of vision of the future for the church that they were going to struggle in this area. And, and lo and behold, as years went on, there were from among the elders there in Ephesus false teachers who began to turn the church away from the gospel. They began to dilute and distort the gospel and, and call them to a sort of works righteousness. What Paul described last week as a different doctrine. What he would go on to say as those who devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In other words, it had a Jewish flavor to its false teaching. They were taking the Old Testament law and perverting it for their own benefit. In other words, when they sat down to do Sunday school or small group, they would open the law up and they would begin to point fingers to everyone in the room and call them out on their, their lack of obedience to the Old Testament law. It had created a terrible situation in the church whereby we are told the members had given themselves up to speculation rather than stewardship from God. In other words, they, they relied on these false teachers to provide them mysteries or secret readings of their Old Testament law. These false teachers, Paul said, described themselves as teachers of the law, as experts of the law, as lawyers. That's where we get the, the word from. Lawyer means an expert on the law, one who can read and understand it. If you've ever read a law uh, before, I just encourage you, maybe Google, you know, law and, and read some laws. You'll, you'll walk away like, what was that all about? I don't, I don't understand it. 
right? We need lawyers in order to interpret laws, right? Why? Because lawyers wrote the laws, right? They're, they're, they're kind of, it's like self-preservation, right? Uh, you got to love it. Those in Congress are folks that, that are lawyers, right? And they write laws for lawyers and so that only lawyers can figure them out. Well, anyways, Paul here is writing to Timothy and giving him this task to guard the teaching ministry of the local church. This is what we thought about last week. And so this sort of builds on that. That as Christians, we are to guard the doctrine of the church. Simply put, it is not my sole responsibility. It's not the elder's sole responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. Though it is part of our responsibility to teach healthy doctrine, it is not our sole responsibility. But as a congregational church, it is your responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. It is your responsibility to guard the teaching ministry of the church, to guard it in such a way as to be committed to biblical, gospel-centered preaching and teaching that aims at love. In other words, one of the biggest ways that you promote healthy doctrine is by a commitment to love. And when you begin to hear preachers and teachers teaching without love, you can quickly see false teaching following. And so Timothy and this church needs to be reminded of the right and proper application of the law. In order to correct those who appear to have these secret interpretations or, or deeper meanings of the text and particularly the law, we need to understand how to rightly apply the Old Testament. And, and, and I've tell you right now, I guarantee you that most of the folks in this room this morning, if you have a place you love to read, it isn't the law, all right? I doubt many of you are thumbing through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I doubt many of you are camping out in the prophets where the prophets are pointing the people back to the law. I'm sure, no doubt, if you open your Old Testament at all, it's probably to some of those really comforting psalms or encouraging proverbs and have little to do with the law. Beyond putting the Ten Commandments on the wall somewhere in our house, we, we relegate the law to something of yesteryear, something of the past rather than the present. My hope this morning is for us to have a proper understanding of the law and then properly apply it to our lives together as God's people. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I hope that gave you a better context of what I'm about to say, and, and, I, and I won't rehash it, but um, I hope you get a better sense of what Paul is after. He, he's after this idea. So let's look here, verse 8. Paul writes, Now, we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What is Paul's main idea? I've summarized it in this sentence. That the law of God is inherently good. The law of God is inherently good when and only when it is properly used to restrain evil. In other words, Paul, of those three uses of the law that we talked about at the beginning, to reveal sin, to renew the soul, and to restrain evil, it's that latter one, restraining evil, that Paul has in mind. And, and Paul has a lot to say about the law. If you want to read more, uh, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, is probably one of Paul's most succinct views of the Old Testament law. Throughout his letters, and this isn't a systematic sermon, this isn't a systematic theology class, and so we don't really have time to go through all of these detailed uses, but, but if you're thinking about those three pillars of the law, or those three lanes that the law runs in, Paul has in mind that more narrow one of restraining evil. 
So the law of God is good when it's properly applied to restrain evil and set in subordination to the God-glorifying gospel of our blessed God and Savior. In other words, what these false teachers were doing was putting the law over the gospel. And Paul here is saying, no, 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 no. You, you see, the law was a piece, a, a part of God's plan of redemption. It was an aspect of it, but it isn't the totality of it. It isn't the end. It wasn't the goal. No, the gospel was the goal. And the law was, mean, was merely a conduit by which we get to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that way, the law of God is subordinate to the glorifying gospel of our blessed God and Savior. And so really the purpose of our time then is for us to properly apply the law in our life. How do we use the law to restrain evil? Are we, are we properly using in the church? Are we using it in a way that's illegitimate and wrong? So here's our question. How do we properly apply the law? Well, I have three points this morning. Number one, see it as good. I, I think that implicitly here in the text is this first main point, which is see that the law is good. See that the law is good. Uh, Paul makes clear the law is not evil, but men and women are evil. The law is not broken. We are broken. Secondly, we are to understand the law's function. That gets at those three uses of the law. If we don't properly understand the purpose of the law, the function of the law, then we will wrongly apply it. Thirdly, we are to set the law in subjection to the gospel. What does that mean? Uh, you'll hear on a pop culture level in evangelical Christianity to be a gospel-centered church or gospel-centered preaching or gospel-centered whatever. What does that mean? That's what we want to think about very quickly in that third point. So very, very, very first thing we see in verse 8, that we are to see the law as good. How do you see the law? How do you view the law? Look at what Paul says. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. Well, there you go. There's the first point. You see it? The law is good. Now, notice what he says. He says, now we know. Who's the we there that he's referring to? Is, is he saying, hey, Timothy, man, we know the law is good. These people are crazy. We know it's good. I, I know they're, they're, but we know it, right? We, we know it, Timothy. No, not at all. That, this isn't Paul and Timothy having a conversation like, like inclusive in that sense. No, no, this is a special kind of we. This is an apostolic we. This is, a, this is an apostolic confession here the we here is the apostolic witness the the authoritative message remember how paul began the letter look back up to verse one paul an apostle of christ jesus by command of god our savior and of christ jesus our hope paul was an apostle but he wasn't alone he he had a group of brothers that were appointed by jesus to have the authoritative word in the church they were to interpret jesus's teaching they were the ones to be the the the, the holders of the doctrine and he is saying that we the apostles know that the law is good in other words, there must have been some accusation leveled against the apostles, and particularly Paul, saying, oh, those guys, they, they don't want anything to do with the law. You know, Paul, he's always talking about how, you know, it's all about grace and mercy and love. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't care for rules. He's an antinomian. He's anti-law. Not at all. Paul says, what are you talking about? No, we know the law is good. It's good because the lawgiver is good. You see, that's the principle, brothers and sisters. How can Paul say the law is good? I mean, rule. I mean, who's ever said, man, I can't wait to, to, to read some rules? I love rules. I love, I, I love being restrained by rules. No, no. By nature, we are libertarians, right? We, we don't want laws and rules and restrictions. We want to live however we want to live. That, that, that's what sin means, is to live life how we want to live it, 
rather than how society or the church or others or even God tells us how to live. But see, this classic view of the goodness of the law is found all throughout the Bible and particularly in two Psalms, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Let me just encourage you and commend you. To, to, if, you want, if you're struggling thinking, ah, I don't know about the law. I, I don't, is it really useful for me? Let's listen to just one phrase. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Friend, do you need your soul revived this morning? Then go meditate on the law. That's what the, that's what the psalmist said. It's, it's, it's not kill. It doesn't kill you. It, it revives you. Or consider Psalm 119. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. In other words, there is a correlation between the rightness of the law of God and the righteousness of God. In other words, God does not declare one rule that is not righteous because he is righteous. He's inherently righteous. He can't pass out bad laws, right? I mean... Congress passes some pretty bad laws, right? <laughs> the state legislature here in Maryland passes some pretty crummy laws, right? But the, the, the word of God, the law of God is perfect because the lawgiver is perfect. In Romans chapter 12, or chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says this, that the law is holy, holy. It's perfect. Why? How can Paul say the law is holy? Because God is holy. God cannot lie. He, he can't deceive. He's, he's perfect. And the commandment, Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. Paul sees the law as good, even in this letter. This letter testi testifies to Paul's view of the law. Let me just show you a couple examples. Look at chapter 4 in, in 1 Timothy. Just turn over one page. And you'll see here Paul's use of the law. He says this in verse 4, Every, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is re received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. He's talking about there about food. You see, part of the issue was that these false teachers were saying that you had to abstain from certain kinds of food, you had to abstain from marriage, you had to do this, you had to do that in order to be loved by God. And, and Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. I love food, he says, because I love the God who made food. Right? You see the correlation? Do you ever wonder why you love food so much? Because God created you to love food because the stuff he created was good. I mean, God creates good things. And in the context here, he's talking about not only food, but the law that would have restricted food. He goes on to say, he says in verse 5, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. He goes on later in this particular passage to say, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is what he tells Timothy. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach the law. I want you to read it publicly. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to call people to obedience to it. I want you to apply it to the life of God's people in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if Paul did not see the law of God as good, as something useful in the life of the believer, why would he commend Timothy to reading it publicly? And you might say, well, why would you think that's what Timothy's reading? Because there was no New Testament. <laughs> what he's talking about when he's saying read scripture, he means read your Old Testament. You see, that's what the early church used to teach and preach from was the Old Testament. They didn't have the, 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 those juicy passages in the New Testament that you all love to, to read and meditate on. No, they had the Old Testament. The New Testament was still being revealed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, Paul will tell Timothy, let the elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What does he do? He uses the Old Testament as the foundation for instructions for the church. Or he goes on, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where, where is that coming from? Is Paul just creating law and rules on his own? No, no, he's getting that from Moses. That was right from Moses' instructions to the nation of Israel that no one 
was to be convicted of a crime based on the witness of one person. It required two or more. You see, Paul saw the law as not only good, but useful in the life of the believer. But, but, he says, back to verse 8, notice what he says. It's not just the law in itself is good without proper interpretation. Rather, look what he says, conditional statement, if one uses it lawfully or more accurately, legitimately. It's a play on words, and that's why it's translated lawfully. And you might think, well, what does that even mean? How do you use a law lawfully? In other words, legitimately. Is it a, is it a legitimate application of the law in light of, as we'll see, God's fuller revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, so David King uh, wrote a helpful article, a number of you, he's a pastor here in America, and he said, a, a preacher, your Old Testament ser- sermon needs to get saved. And, and just recently, uh, Nine Marks produ- uh, published that, that uh, sermon. And in it, what he means is a lot of times Christians read and interpret their Old Testament like first century Jews rather than 21st century Christians. In other words, if if your interpretation of the law isn't going through the gospel, then it's illegitimate. That, the, that, that that's not the use of it. And here contextually, what Paul is referring to is the function of the law to restrain evil. But before we leave this point, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, do you see the benefit of the law in your life? As Calvin said, that if we were to meditate on it and read it, that we would be renewed by it. I mean, that is a legitimate use of the law. The Sermon on the Mount is exactly what we're talking about here. It's Jesus giving legitimate application of the law to the life of the believer. You see, we ought to study, meditate, and apply it. But you won't do that if you don't first see it as good. We want to rightly see that the law of God helps us to know God's character. See, that's why I want you to see the correlation between the law and the lawgiver. You want to know the lawgiver. You want to know God. You get to know God through all of his word, the totality of his word, not just the New Testament. And as, and as Luther said, hey, you want to know your need of the gospel? Well, meditate on the law, and you will soon find that you will not be able to fulfill the law. You see, the more you meditate on the law, the more you will appreciate the grace that you have been given in Jesus Christ. You will recognize that there is no way, no, no possibility under heaven that you would have been able to fulfill the law apart from Jesus. That's what makes the gospel all the more glorious. No law. The gospel pales into comparison to the glory that it is. You see, every tool in the toolbox has a purpose. And tools were invented by their creator for those particular purposes. You might, you might take a screwdriver out of a toolbox, right? And you, I know you've done it. And I cringe when I see people do this. But, but they take screwdrivers out and they, they think they're like little prying devices. Like you're supposed to pry with a screwdriver. You don't pry with screwdrivers. Screwdrivers are not meant to be pry, pry bars, all right? They are meant to drive screws. That is their, their use, all right? Because that's what the inventor of that tool meant it for. They made pry bars to pry things. Screwdrivers aren't that. The law was created by God for a particular purpose. We ought to not use the law in a way that is illegitimate, that the creator did not have intended for it. The law is not intended to keep your grandkids from getting tattoos. Even though that's your favorite passage in Leviticus. It says right there, you shouldn't get tattoos, Sonny. Well, it also says in the next verse, uh, Grandma, that uh, you shouldn't wear blended cotton. You shouldn't be blending your cotton with the polyester. So that 50-50 shirt you're wearing right now, shouldn't have it. 
You see, we want to use the law in the way that God has purposed. And in order to do that, we need to listen to what Paul has to say here. And so, secondly, we must understand the law's function. Look what Paul says, verse 9. Understand this, he says. He says, listen, know this, Timothy. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, look at that again. That the law was not given for the just or the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient. And he goes on and he has a whole list there of who the law is for. The law, Paul says, is not for the righteous. What does he mean? He means that the law is insufficient to save. It was pointless for the beloved. That's not the purpose of the law. It's not to earn your relationship with God. You, You see, back in the bigger picture of of Reformed theology is this understanding that that it's always been by grace. The salvation has always been by grace through the promise of God. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, it's been by grace. It's never been by works. It's always been by grace. What does Paul, or what does God say to Adam and Eve? I promise you something. That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, I'm going to fix this horrible problem you've created called sin. And I'm going to do it. And I promise I'll do it. And I will cover your shame through the death of animals and ultimately through my son. God had a plan that by grace. God had told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you rebel, if you sin, if you do this one unspeakable act, I will kill you. But he doesn't kill them. Not yet, at least. It's by grace. And it's by faith, believing in the promise of God. And in this way, Paul says, listen, not that we're to trash our Old Testaments, but the intended purpose of the, the, for the righteous isn't to restrain evil. Because we're already restrained. We're under the constraints of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that Christians don't sin, that we don't uh, go down ugly roads, but it is that the law's purpose here in this mind of Paul is that it is to restrain the ungodly. It is to keep them from doing the things that they want to do the worst. So, for example, Paul would say to the church in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, they were illegitimately applying the law to the life of the saints rather than the sinner. And so Paul here tells us that the law is for the unrighteous. Paul here provides a non-exhaustive list. And let me help you out here. If you want to think that Paul's list are exhaustive, they're not, but they're purposeful. All right? So when Paul begins to list out vices, he doesn't mean to say that, hey, these are the only things that people struggle with. What he means is, hey, these are the things that people maybe are struggling with in Ephesus. But there's more sin out there. Notice how Paul organizes. He lists here 14 vices that are divided into two main groups. First, offenses against God that are summarized in three couplets that correspond to the first four commandments in the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. And so it seems that Paul is using these Ten Commandments as a backdrop to what he's about to talk about here. And he lists here these three couplets. Look at them with me in verse, verse, beginning in verse 9. The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, and the unholy and profane. Each one of these three, of, these three couplets point at the first four commandments in the Old Testament law, in the Decalogue. Paul has in mind those who are lawless and disobedient. 
It doesn't quite capture, the NIV I think helpfully captures this better, in that the lawless and rebel, and I love that word rebel better than disobedient. Disobedient uh, sounds somewhat passive because of, I think, how we were raised perhaps. Uh, diso- you know, we disobey our parents and it, and it has an, an aspect of passivity in it. You know, we were just being kids, right? You see that? See the passive? Oh, he was just being a kid. No, he was being a rebellious sinner, all right? And he needs Jesus. Um, And so the word rebel, I think, has a provocativeness to it. Uh, Rebel. It has an activity to it. The aspect of rebellion is that I willingly chose to say no to God. You see, that's what the, the, the Bible paints as a more accurate picture of us as sinners. As being lawless and rebellious. We, we not only disobey God, but we willingly say, ha, I knew that was wrong and I loved it to do it anyways. More than that, he goes on to say that they were ungodly and sinful. In other words, their character did not reflect the goodness of God in their lives. Not more than that, they were unholy and profane. They, again, you see the aspects, thou shalt not use the word of the Lord in vain. There's this, this aspect of cursing God. It's one thing to say, hey, I, I, I'm going to willingly disobey God. It's another thing to say, hey, I'm going to disobey God and then blame him for all my problems. To profane the name of God. More than that is to be created in the image of God. Catch this. And to to know that, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, and willfully rebel against that. Because, you know, we although we may not know God or, or want to know God, we are created to have the knowledge of God in us. So these first three uh, couplets here correspond to the first four commandments. And then... Paul seems to kind of spiral down then into some specifics, doesn't he? he I, I love 1 Timothy because Paul, man, he, he, he names names, all right? He's not afraid to call sin, sin, all right? And uh, he goes on there in, in, in the latter half of verse 9, and he says, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and there's a little kind of, Summary statement, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Well, you see here, these seven uh, refer to the last five commandments in the Decalogue. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Paul envisions here the worst of worse of those who dishonor their parents. Um, You can't get worse than striking, and and again, the, the verbal idea is murder, striking to kill your parents, right? You can't dishonor your parents more than killing them, in other words, right? It's a pretty extreme case, is it not? It's those who want to strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, literally man-killers. So the idea here isn't merely manslaughter, right? Which is one who maybe unintentionally kills others, but one who intentionally sets out to kill another human being created in the image of God. Again, he's envisioning here the worst of the worst, isn't he? And you might say here, as you're going down this list, thinking, my goodness, how many of these are actually in the church in Ephesus? Well, that's the point. None of them. No one would be admitted into membership in the church in Ephesus if they were, had, or had, were actively involved in murdering their parents. Or plotting to murder someone else. Or as we see going down the list here, someone who is called sexually immoral. Now, to be clear, he doesn't mean those who once were these things, but rather these who were actively doing these things. Paul's saying this is not the use of the law. You're talking to the wrong crowd. You're you're preaching to the choir, if you will. This is the wrong crowd, false teachers. The sexually immoral are not merely those who commit adultery, but those who commit any sexual sin outside the boundaries of marriage. And I know often we narrow that down to say, oh, only talking about affair here. No, not at all. Not at all. And sadly, in our contemporary society, we've created a whole host of ways that we can sexually sin against our spouses. 
He goes on to say those who practice homosexuality. In our day and age, this is no doubt a verse that is often used and misquoted. Scholars have tried to go back and try to uh, find a different meaning of the word. This is why modern translators make clear here men who practice, though they do not mean it's this sin is limited to men, but rather those who practice homosexuality. In other words, to make very clear there is a willful aspect to this idea of those who are willingly participating in same-sex relationships. Friend, brothers and sisters, we know that this is a particular issue of concern in our society. Our culture has shifted far from where we once were, basically, as a society. This is one issue that has been very confusing to Christians uh, because they, they want to love others and they want to commend others. And, and let me just commend to you this morning grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, that this is sin. We, we have to call it as sin, but the gospel saves sinners. Just remember that as we commend the gospel to those around us. He goes on to, to, to the eighth commandment, those who are enslavers. And, and, and here, fascinatingly, is, is those who do harm, that we're to love our neighbors. And he has this word enslaver, right? It is the, the, the idea is a man enslaver. One who forcibly enslaves others. And, and some, sadly, in, in, in our own history, ha- have used the Bible to support human slavery. Uh, but, but Paul here in this verse makes very clear that the enslaving of another human being against their will is a sin against a holy God. And you can try to exegete this passage any which way you want, but it's pretty clear he means it's sinful. He goes on then to, in the ninth commandment, liars and perjurers, those who, who speak lies and then those who perjure themselves, those who are under oath and yet, fascinatingly, he doesn't deal with the 10th commandment, commandment at all, probably because it's so broad in its application. What's Paul's point? Well, his point is pretty clear in the summary. Look what he says in summary. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, he's saying that there isn't a legitimate way that we are to apply the law. And it doesn't apply to the church in the way that you're trying to apply it. He's saying, listen, there is a way in which we are to understand and apply the law in our life. But the way you're doing it, friend, is wrong. The, the, the law does not lead to a relationship with God. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does. But, as Philip Ryken helpfully says, every true child of the faith must have a true understanding of the law. In other words, we must be careful lest we are tempted to wrongly apply the law in the life of those around us. And I'm not kidding when I use like a passage like that tattoo passage, because, friend, I've been in Southern Baptist churches long enough to know that's your favorite verse, and you have it tattooed on your body. We go and snag these obscure Old Testament passages, and frankly, we might even maybe snag one of these ones coming up about women here having their hair done up a certain way. And wrongly apply it to others. We want to be careful. We want to be cautious that we are saved by grace and not by work. We cannot use the law to change people. You cannot legislate sin. You can't do it. Cannot do it. You won't ever be able to do it. Only the Spirit of God breathes life where there is death. Obedience has never led one to a relationship with God. And you, it won't. Those people around you, their problem isn't that they aren't fulfilling the law. Their problem is they're rebellious sinners in need of a, of a Savior. They need to be restrained. And the law is restraining them. And by God's grace, revealing their need for a Savior. 
Paul will go on in chapter 2 to say, this is what I want. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Why? So that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, that they would be saved. The law condemns. The gospel saves. He's like, why are we using the law to condemn people all the time when we should be using it to lead people to Jesus? God's law has been revealed to renew our soul, to reveal sin, and to restrain the evil around us. It is to be used legitimately for its purposes. The purpose in society, the purpose in the church, and the purpose in our own souls. And first and foremost, it must be set in subjection to the gospel. We must understand that it relates to the gospel. It, they're, they're, they're not irrelated. They're not cu- cousins. I mean, they're, they're very, uh, they're not distant cousins, rather. They're, they're closely related. Look at what he says. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance or according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, it all comes to a head in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it is in subjection to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone and not by works. Paul will, have, will warn Timothy in chapter for Second Timothy, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And let me just say, there are folks out there whose passion is to be experts on the law. They are experts on their restrictiveness. The pendulum of licentiousness has swung the other way. And all they do is have rule upon rule upon rule, which have, has no binding upon the conscience of the believer. You remember what Paul said last week about having a clear conscience? Not having consciences that are seared? You know, so many of us bind the conscience of others where God's word does not bind. Period. Are you binding the conscience of others through laws? that were not intended to be applied the way you applied them. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorious. Look at what he says here. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, the gospel displays the the glory of God greater than the law. When Moses gave the law to the name, when Moses received the law, rather, when he was up on the mountain, what did he ask? God for. I want to see your glory. And, and he, he got to see an aspect of God's glory. But as the story unfolded, the rebellion of not only Moses, but of the nation of Israel eclipsed the glory of God such that when they returned from exile, there was no glory in the temple any longer until Jesus Years later, centuries later, walks in and says, there's something greater than the temple here. That that is that the glory of God has been revealed again. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we heard in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the world to keep their eyes from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel reveals God's glory in the lives of his people when it's used legitimately. You see, if we use the tool rightly rather than wrongly, there's something amazing that happens. If you've ever tried to do a job and you don't have the right tool, like you don't have a pry bar and so you get a screwdriver to try to do the job, it never works out. You might get the job done, but it's a frustrating job. It, it maybe takes double the time, and it's, it's really quite annoying. But if you have the right tool to do the right job, there's something amazing. It's like, man, that was quick. That was easy. That was fun. You might even say it was glorious. So it is with the law and the gospel. When rightly applied to the life of God's people, it is glorious. 
The gospel is to be the central piece. It is to be the lens by which we interpret all things around us. Even the law. We need to understand to be gospel central means that we use the gospel to help us think about everything about us. We use the gospel to help us think about who God is. We use the gospel to help us think about who we are. We use the gospel to think about cultural issues of our day and to think about the world around us. See, the gospel is the totality of God's redemptive purposes fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, for example, in the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the gospel and applies it to the life of God's people in a gospel-centered way. When he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church. In other words, the way the gospel displays love is how we ought to love. You see, that's how we, we interpret through the lens of the gospel. We think about God through the lens of the gospel. We think about ourselves through the lens of the gospel. That is how we as a church remain gospel-centered. We want to think about difficult issues centered around the gospel. And when we get off of the gospel and maybe get onto issues that really don't have anything to do with the gospel, that's when we can drift into theological error at worst, or at best, we might take third-level theological issues and make them primary. Brothers and sisters, the law of God we see is inherently good when it is used to restrain evil and set in subordination to God's glorifying gospel of our blessed Lord. We want to understand these three uses, use them in our lives to restrain evil, to reveal sin, to renew the soul. We want to see the law is good in these ways when it is used in these ways. We must commit, remain committed to faithful exposition of Scripture, whether it be the preaching ministry, the teaching ministry, or our individual study of God's Word. We must understand that the law must be set in its proper place and purpose, leading us to Jesus and the need for the gospel and restraining sin lest things get worse. I leave you with this quote from Philip Ryken. He says, Unhealthy theology produces unhealthy conduct, and an unsound life always betrays sound doctrine. Every sin comes ultimately from a failure to believe rightly about God. Friends, that's so true. If you don't rightly understand the gospel and the economy of God, then you won't rightly understand God, and you will ultimately live unrightly unrighteously before him let's pray father we pray that your will be done in our lives for your glory may jesus be big in our lives and in this church for all eternity we pray in christ's name